Thank you for joining us here at Celebration Church, where we celebrate God, celebrate people, and celebrate life. We hope you enjoy today's message. Good morning, everybody. We uh, love you, love to be here, and it's great to see so many of you that we know and so many of you that we don't. It's a healthy sign for the church that uh, so many faces that I don't know, and uh, well done. We had a great time this morning. Worship team did brilliantly. Thank you, Nat and Karen. I want to honour the pastors of the house, Benaya, Charlie, Joel and Alex, Nat and Karen, and Paul and Michelle. I just want to honour, and if there are any more that I don't know of, I just want to honour them all. And then get straight to the word. Um, Thank you, Karen. That was lovely. I think it adds to the sermon, but it's... I'll try without it and see if we can do do something that's okay. Now, I haven't done this for probably 12 months or since I was here last time, so see if we can get back on the bike. Father, we thank you this morning for your grace. I thank you for the grace we always step into every time we're in your presence, every time we're doing something in Jesus' name. And I ask for that grace to be upon the house this morning that whatever is said might be a seed that will produce something not only this year but in the years to come so this house can truly grow and produce a harvest as we've been hearing about. In Jesus' name, amen. I want to share with you around the thought that the Alpha and the Omega have you in mind. We live in a world that trains us to look at the present and not the future, to look at the earth and not heaven, to look at man and not God. That's the environment in which we are growing up, we are growing, going forward, doing our lives, raising our families. And we have been also trained to believe a lie, and that lie is this, that you or me, we are the most important things on the planet. Uh, It isn't true, I'm sorry. Um, May as well offend some right up front. I'm going to say a few things this morning that some of you are probably going to have to swallow hard about in your Christian doctrine. Uh, I want to leave you with some thoughts that you're going to discuss maybe long beyond this church service. But people cannot help but view life subjectively. And so we tend to look at life through these sorts of questions. Who am I? Why am I here? What is my purpose? And where do I fit in? Now, they're questions that probably you, certainly I, have asked at least some of those questions along the journey. And we think somehow that if we find answers to these questions, we will find fulfillment in life. I don't think that's the case. I've mentioned before, I don't expect you to remember, that there is a thing called the Shorter Westminster Catechism. This is a, uh, a compiled document of thought which came from a synod of English and Scottish theologians in 1647. And the Shorter Westminster Catechism, this this group of theological brains 
and, and people that were studying God and studying the church and studying man as a believer, they came up with a list of questions. And the first question that they sought to find an answer to was this. What is the chief end of man? What is the chief end of man? In other words, what is the most important thing that a man or woman, of course, the man is the collective term, what is the most important thing that a person should be on about in their life? Now, if I was just to ask you outside the context of this message, I might ask you that in the, in the courtyard. You might say, well, I think family's important. Or I think leaving a mark is important. Or giving something by way of uh, an inheritance to your children is very important. Or being good to your neighbour. Or serving in mission or laying down your life for somebody else is important. And all those things are incredibly important, but none of those things, I believe, are the chief end of man. These people in this synod, which is a conflagration of people coming together and discussing or debating a thought in order to get an answer, not to just attack one another, this synod came up with this answer. The chief end of man is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. That is the primary thing that a person can do in their lifetime. And they might have a family and a great career and they might be a great asset to their society and be mission-hearted and, and, and a blessing, but the chief end of man is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. This is what they came up with. Now, I have to probe what that means if I'm going to embrace that and give myself to this. What does to glorify God mean? I've got three suggestions from scripture. I hear Nat gave 165 scriptures two weeks ago. I've got, I've got, a, few, I've got a few here this morning. To glorify God, well, first of all, in John 6.40, it says this. I'm reading, most of these are coming out of the NIV. John 6.40, for my father, my father's will is that everyone who looks to the son and believes in him shall have eternal life and I will raise him up in the last day. Then John 17.3, now this is eternal life that they know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you've sent. So the first thing I get in a, by way of glorifying God to do the father's will is to believe is to believe in him, okay? Just go through a mental thing in your own Christian walk. Do I believe in him? If you've got that one, you can tick it off inside your head. But another thing comes from that as well, to know him. Eternal life is to know him and him whom he sent. So to believe him and to know him. And then we come to John 17, 4. Jesus said, as he was praying to the Father, I have brought you glory on earth by finishing the work you gave me to do. So I suggest to you that the third thing is to finish the work that God has given you to do. If you want to glorify God, believe in him, know him, and finish the work he's given you to do. Now, when Jesus said that, that was not post-crucifixion. That was not post-ascension. That was pre-crucifixion and ascension. 
He was praying in John 17. This is before he goes to the cross. He said, I have glorified you by fulfilling the work you gave me to do. Well, what was the work that the Father gave him to do? Well, it was to share the Father with people. It was actually to model the Father. Now, he healed some people and cast demons out of a few people and gave great, great teaching sessions and hung around with some guys and mentored them. And basically, they picked up nothing from him in three years, if you really read the account. Uh, so he didn't, well, he didn't do great at mentoring, but there was a purpose for that as well. Now, the reason that he came was to model his father. So if you want to glorify God, believe in him, know him, and model him. That, I believe, is how we can do it in this life. There might be other things as well, but there are three things that I suggest to you this morning, that the chief end of, of man is to glorify God by believing him, by knowing him, and by sharing him with other people. Then it says, and to enjoy him forever. Are you enjoying God? I grew up for a lot of years in my life being taught that God was a pretty strict taskmaster and that he was always looking for the moment that I would slip up. And I slipped up my fair share of times. I slipped up almost as many as, say, Alex or Pastor Joel would have slipped up. <laughs> I made an art of slipping up. And I was taught that God was waiting and ready to punish me or to withdraw something from me. And so the whole thing ended up in, over the years of some sort of, I'm talking about, I guess, when I was younger, when I was a kid, but uh, sort of bartering with God. If you'll let me off this, if that won't happen, then I will go to church every day, every Sunday this year, and I will sing in the choir, and I will go to youth group, and I will, whatever, I never, uh, I never promised to work in the children's church, but I promised everything else. <laughs> Because that was my concept of God. I wasn't enjoying God at all. I was enduring God. Well, we're supposed to enjoy God. In Exodus 33, 13, Moses knew the key to enjoying God. He said, if you are pleased with me, teach me your ways that I may know you. I think the ways of God are so fascinating. They're so, they're so fascinating to me that... I search to see the ways of God. I search everywhere I can. And I believe there are two, basically two things that God has given us to help us understand his ways. See, I can't be married to my beautiful wife, Annie. And we've been married for 39 years. Yeah, 39. And it doesn't need a clap, just sort of... Send me a card of, no, just 39 years, enjoyed every minute of it. I was talking for her. And <laughs> I, did, I have too. But I can't walk with her unless I get to know her. And I get to know her over time by walking with her. And God has given us two ways to get to know him. Number one is the scriptures. 66 books in the canon of Scripture, we call it the Bible. This is a way of going, getting to know God and His ways. It basically outlines the plan of salvation, 
through his son Jesus and shows where Jesus fits in to the master plan that God has for us. How we are to relate to that plan, the keys to relating to that plan. So we have the book of scripture. And then we have another book we call Facebook. No, it's not Facebook. We have another book we call the book of nature. The book of nature is a display of his creativity, genius, wonder expressed in his created order. Now I'm going to read you a long scripture, Psalm 139, and this is a favourite. We quite often go to this one, but I'm going to pull a few thoughts out of this. Psalm 139. Listen to the way the psalmist sees God. You have searched me, Lord, and know me. You know when I sit and when I rise, and you perceive my thoughts from afar. You discern my going out and my lying down. You are familiar with all my ways. Before a word is on my tongue, Lord, you know it completely. You hem me in and behind, before, and you lay your hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me, too lofty for me to attain. Where can I go from your spirit? Where can I flee from your presence? If I go up to the heavens, you are there. If I make my bed in the depths, you are there. If I rise on the wings of the dawn, if I settle on the far side of the sea, even there your hand will guide me. Your right hand will hold me fast. If I say, surely the darkness will hide me and the light will become night around me, even the darkness will not be dark to you. The night will shine like the day, for darkness is as light to you. For you created my inmost being and you knit me together in my mother's womb. I praise you because I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Your works are wonderful. I know that full well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was made in the secret place, when I was woven together in the depths of the earth. Your eyes saw my unformed body, or for all the days ordained for me were written in your book before one of them came to be. How precious to me are your thoughts, O God. How vast is the sum of them. Were I to count them, they would outnumber the, the grains of sand. When I awake, I am still with you. That is a beautiful psalm and so worth meditating on. So what it shows to me there is... I don't know how much time I've got because the, the clock isn't going, but anyway, we'll just keep going. Um, that's all right, I've got a countdown clock. And... What it shows me is this. If I go to the smallest thing that there is, if I go and look at something like an atom, now there are smaller things, but if I go and look at an atom, what the psalmist tells me is if I go there, I see God. And if I go to the greatest, most expansive, the biggest thing that I know of, which is the universe, if I go there, I see God. I see God everywhere in between if I look, if I'm willing to allow God in his creation to speak to me. Romans 1.20, For since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities his eternal power and his divine nature have clearly been seen, being understood from what has been made so that people are without excuse. If a person has never, ever heard the name Jesus, 
never known the story of salvation, then there is enough in creation for a heart to start to yearn towards the Creator and God will find a way to embrace them because he's placed it in the book of nature. And that's what Paul says in that passage. If I go to the stars, if I go to the heavens, <coughs> you are there. The stars in the Milky Way, we, we, we're, our planet is in the Milky Way, you will all know that, and the stars in the Milky Way are numbered as 100 billion. 100 billion, all right? All the mathematicians, get, get your heads working. The galaxies in the, in the universe are projected to be 2 trillion. The way they do that is they take a pinpoint in space and delve into it and make a determination of how many galaxies are in that and then they multiply it by the whole thing. So the stars, therefore, in the whole universe are estimated to be 200 billion trillion. That's two with 23 zeros. <laughs> 200 billion trillion stars. And Psalm 147.4 in the New American Standard Version says this, he counts the number of the stars, he gives names to all of them. We find it hard enough to find a name for a baby. And here's the key, guys. When you go to the hospital and your wife has given birth to a baby, you go to the hospital, if you name it, it's yours. You've got to take it home. So don't name it quickly. Leave it there as long as you can. The moment you name it, you've got to take it home. Scientists run out of names for stars, so they give them numerical numbers. But God has two, what did I say, 200 billion trillion stars, and he's come up with a name for all of them. Do you want something to do in eternity? Memorize the names of the stars. I mean, do you believe the scripture is true or not? I mean, that's what it says. He gives names to every single one of them. On December the 22nd, 2021, which is just over three weeks ago, there was the launch of the James Webb Telescope. This telescope has been 20 years in the making. It's in collaboration between NASA, the European Space Agencies, and an agency and a number of other agencies. And it costs around 12 billion Australian dollars to get together and to send it up. 12 billion Australian. It's a telescope. It's the most expensive non-manned space uh, flight ever sent. It's designed to surpass the Hubble's ministry. I'll call it ministry because that's really what it's doing. It's ministering to us with information. It's designed to surpass the Hubble's task. Well, well pass it. And it is looking through time. A telescope is basically a time machine looking backwards when it comes to looking into the heavens. 
And this particular telescope, the James Webb telescope, unlike the Hubble, which measures rays of light, this thing measures uh, infrared light, still on the electromagnetic spectrum, still part of the light, light of, part of the light wave. But that's what it's measuring. The speed of light, when I went to school, the speed of light was 186,000 miles per second. It's one of the few things I remember about school. It always fascinated me. Today's, in today's currency, that's 300,000 kilometers a second, the speed of light. The sun is 150 million kilometers from the earth. And light takes 8.7 seconds to get from the surface of the sun to us. So when we watch the sunrise, you are seeing into the past. You are seeing a sun 8.7 seconds ago. So if the sun isn't there, if it blows up, you've got 8.7 seconds of blissful ignorance to live your life in whatever manner you choose. I, I, I can't tell behind those masks whether or not you're going or you're, go, you're, or you're frowning at me, but I find it interesting. Um, uh, the reason I'm telling you that is because this satellite, the James Webb satellite, is being, has been launched. It's, it's there now. It's on the way there now. And they're going to position it at L2, which is a Lagrange point. And Lagrange is a position in the heavens, in, in the atmosphere, or beyond the Earth's atmosphere, which is necessary to counter the gravitational pull of the sun and the gravitational pull of the Earth, because they need this thing to be absolutely still. It cannot be oscillating because of gravitational force. So the L2 for the James Webb Telescope will position it in basically a neutral position where it is being pulled on equally by both planetary bodies. And it's as still as they can get it, so they can look, because to look back as far as this thing is going to look back, it needs to be totally accurate. The Big Bang, which I'll prefer to, to talk about as God's voice, the speaking forth of God, the Big Bang, uh, we are told to believe, is 13.8 billion years ago. I don't doubt that. Uh, sorry if you're a seven-day literal creationist and we have only been around for 6,000 years plus a few years before Eve ate the wrong fruit. I believe that God spoke 13.8 billion years ago. And this telescope is able to look back they, they are anticipating it's able to look back 13.5 billion years. In other words, the light emitting from things so deep into space that this thing is, is designed to pick up, the light emitting from it has taken 13.5 billion years to get to the face of the telescope. If that's the case, it's nearly at the beginning. It can almost pick up when God moved frequency into creation. 
Why is God giving science, science, mathematicians and all the people, astrophysicists, the ability to go into these places? Because he wants us to know how the creation is glorifying him and scripture has been speaking of these things since it was first written. The first book of the Bible is the, written was the book of Job, about 500 years before Moses penned, uh, wrote the Pentateuch, which are the first five books of the Bible, Genesis, etc. Now, one of the great Reformation creeds is the Belgic Confession in 1561, which was written in order to, to counter the eroding of belief systems. The Catholic Church was underway with the Inquisition against the Reformed believers and various other non-Catholic belief systems of the day. And so they were doing a purging. And the Belgic Confession says this, part of it says this, we know him, that's God, by two means. First, by the creation, preservation and government of the universe, since the universe is before our eyes like a beautiful book in which all the creatures, great and small, are as, are as letters to make us ponder the invisible things of God, his eternal power and his divinity. As the Apostle Paul says in Romans 1.20, all these things are enough to convict men and to leave them without excuse. Second, he makes himself known to us more openly by his holy and divine word, as much as we need in this life for his glory and for the salvation of his own. In other words, they look first at creation. Then they said, we've also got the scriptures. This article reminds us that there are these two books. Job 42.5 says this, Job said this, I have heard you, but now my eyes have seen you. I think it's a little bit where we're up to with science and faith. We've heard God through faith, through scripture, but now our eyes are seeing through science. And the James Webb telescope is showcasing the awe of God. Okay. I'm just going to say on a point here, consider what you look like. Consider your features. Now, you are sitting next to a design masterpiece. Consider what you look like. <laughs> we now have the ability to go back into family trees and have a look and see where we came from and all this sort of stuff. But have you ever noticed that if you see a picture of your big family or somebody way back in the family tree on either side, your parents' side, have you noticed how you say, oh, I think I've got, oh, I've got them here. I think I've got my, your mother's eyes or I've got my mother's eyes or my father's nose or your grandfather's or grandmother's figure, or your grandfather's ears, etc. And then you look on the other side of the family. That might be your mother's side. And then you look on the other side, and you say, well, I've, I've, I've got feet like my great-grandfather, and I've got freckles like somebody else. Do you know that <laughs> in that Psalm 139, it says that God made us perfectly in the hidden place, in the womb he formed us. He made us exactly the way he wanted us. Do you know, if you think about it for a moment, you are a, co a, a combination of 
unique features that go way back in your ancestry and they've manifested in the beautiful way that you are in your time, your unique features, he's organised it all. He's, he hasn't just organised a date with your mum and dad who met and went on a date and then the rest happened and then you came along and he didn't just say, I'll design something while she's pregnant and I'll just sort of throw a few things together here and, oh, I forgot about that, but it's all right, the doctors can fix it up later on. He made you, according to his mind, his thoughts, the psalmist says, your thoughts are so much, it'll be like the sands of the sea. But he not only thought about you, he thought about your parents, how they were going to come together, their parents, how they were going to come together, their parents, how they were going to come together. And so it goes back. In order to create you, he had you in mind way back to Adam and Eve. God knows where you are and he knows exactly what you are and what you look like and how you're formed. His, his mind is towards you. <coughs> Consider the length of your life. Psalm 139, 16. Your eyes saw my unformed body. All the days ordained for me were written in your book before one of them came to be. All my days are written in a book before one of them came to be. I'll tell you what that tells me. That tells me what Job said in Job 14.5, a person's days are determined, you have decreed the number of his months and have set limits he cannot exceed. Your end day is already marked. Your quality of life between here and that day might be affected by exercise, diet, attitude, etc. But your, the day of your demise is already set. And no matter how much you go to the gym or eat kale, <laughs> you cannot prolong it one day. Now, I'm just reading the Bible. But Job knew this, you see. Now, I'm almost finished. I've got something I want to show you in a minute. But astrophysicists have discovered a massive problem and it's also a mind-blowing fact. The problem is a mathematical problem. It's the measurement of the universe because the universe, they now discover, is actually expanding at an accelerated rate. If it's expanding at an accelerated rate, it's breaking a number of laws of physics. And this is what they're trying to work out. How are we going to get around this? Because the laws of physics are like this. The law of entropy, this is very rough, but if you're versed in this, please forgive me and you can give me more information later on. But the law of entropy is basically this. If a pitcher at a baseball game throws the ball towards the batter, the fastest it's travelling is when it leaves his hand. And it starts to, the law of entropy is that everything is moving towards a state of um, disorder. It's actually, the, the second law of thermo, thermo nuclear, uh, thermodynamics is this, that the state of an object in regards its heat mass is dissipating. It is moving from heated to non-heated. It is moving from organised to disorganised. 
So when the Big Bang happened, which is God's voice decreeing the creation of the universe, when God created the universe, everything is supposed to be at maximum speed there and start to die down, but it's not. It's going the other way. This is a problem for scientists, and they're trying to... But what they've discovered is this. They've discovered a number of things which mess with our scientific theories. Job 9.8. Nearly all these scriptures are from Job. Job 9.8. He alone spreads out the heavens. It is God that is spreading the heavens out. Now, how's he doing it? That's the scientific question. We know it's happening. And the scripture, if you have faith, says it's God that's doing it. But how's he doing it? Well... We used to believe that the definition of darkness was the absence of light. We can't hide behind that anymore, guys. I'm sorry. Light is not the absence of darkness because now they've found a number of things called... They've they've discovered ordinary matter and dark matter in the universe. Now, I don't have time to talk about that, but I'll talk about another thing they've discovered, which is called dark energy. And dark energy is so mysterious, they haven't been able to actually get hold of it or see it, but they've theorised it must be there. Dark energy is a matter that takes up 72.1% of the universe and is responsible for the rate at which the universe is expanding. Dark matter is best described as an anti-elastic face over space. And it's pulling creation into an accelerated disunity. It's moving it towards and outwards. And it's been doing it for 13.8 billion years. And now they believe, the scientists believe, that only at a precise point in this dark manner Uh, and its effect on the creation. Only at a precise point can life possibly exist on a planet like ours. There is a small, incredibly small window. I didn't understand the maths when when I read up on this. I didn't understand the terminology, so I won't try to act like I do. But basically they said the, the... the opportunity for this to happen naturally is so astronomically small that is basically non-existent. You can't get life to form except it is at this precise point. So what I'm suggesting to you is this, that God has created man on a planet that's taken more than 6,000 years to get to a place where he could live on it, because I'm sick and tired of trying to come up with reasons why the fossils they're finding of alligators and crocodiles and fish, you know, oh, God put them there. Lame. <laughs> I'm afraid the scientific community just, would, just laughs at us with this sort of stuff. We've got to get a synergy between science and theology in a way that we don't water down scripture, but we prove science. <clears throat> so man is set for 6,000 years on a planet, but it has to be now. It has to be exactly now. And in, in, the, in the, compared to 13.8 billion years, 6,000, 10,000 years is nothing. But it had to happen now. In the fullness of time, God sent forth his son. What is the fullness of time? It's now. 
as dark as dark energy is pushing everything out and the and our planet can hold us here. Now I've actually finished, but I've got something to show you. Part of our self-centric life thought theology, if you like, is it's all about me. It's not all about me. This wasn't created for me. It wasn't created for you. It was created for Jesus. Jesus said that he created it for himself. It's not about me. It's about God. It's about Jesus. It's about how do we fit in to bring glory to God in our life and enjoy him in the process of it. How do we do that? If we give ourselves some time to say it's about him, and the people before a few generations ago, when they wrote songs, they didn't write it about themselves. They wrote it about God. You go back and read the Psalms. You read the, 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 if you listen to the hymns. It's all about how wonderful God is, how spectacular. The, the, ancients, the, the ancient believers, our, our forebears in, in faith, were so wowed by God. They were overcome with his greatness and his you know, how little they were and how massive he was, and they were wowed by him. This is what I call magnifying God. If you magnify something, you get an instrument to put a lens on it, and it becomes bigger. I love magnifying God through reading, through a sunrise, through watching the birds, to looking at mountains with snow on them. I love magnifying God because my forebears in the faith did this all the time and they wrote about it all the time. We hope you were encouraged by today's message. If you would like to know more about our church, please go to celebrationchurch.com.au.